You are here because you care. There's a man in your life that either has told you that he was sexually abused as a child or you suspect strongly that happened. And it's impacting your relationship with him. And you'd like to fix that so that you could have the relationship that you fantasize, that you envision, that is possible with this wonderful man. My name is Merle Yost. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. Early in my career, I had all of these men come into my practice who were sexually abused as children. Some of them knew it, some of them didn't. And as this material came up, I had to learn how to deal with it. In my experience, therapists, that their specialty finds them. And this found me. Also, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. So I know this material both from the inside and from the outside both being in relationship and being single and being there in the therapy room with the men. So what I would like to do here is first take a little bit to explain exactly what sexual abuse is, how it shows up, and then we'll talk about you and the impact upon the relationship and what you can and can't do about that. So first of all, what is abuse? Mick Hunter describes child abuse as any time that a child is used to meet the needs of an adult. Yes, that's broad, but think about it. A child is born to be taken care of and to have his needs met by the adult in a healthy way, not to be used to meet the needs of what the adult is doing. Sexual abuse is a particularly egregious kind of abuse. I'll explain why. The normal psychosexual development of a boy in adolescence and puberty, he starts developing his body and he has a growing awareness of sexual feelings and attraction toward others. And so he eventually he'll begin masturbating and exploring his own body. And this should continue for a number of years before he actually engages in sex with another person. Or he may have some peer sexual contact because that's appropriate and they're both at the same level. And so what happens is he's masturbating, exploring his body and figuring out his attractions and erotic fantasies is that he's developing neural pathways that allows him to hold an erotic charge and allows him to experience pleasure so that he can build that charge and move through it and come to a place of release and completion and feel satiated by that experience. When a boy is sexually abused, this is true for any child, is that it's like plugging a 220 appliance into a 110 outlet. It overloads the charge. And so instead of this normal development uh, that goes through childhood of building those neural pathways to experience pleasure and erotic charge, it blows up. And they're stuck at that point of psychosexual development until such time as they work through the trauma and can begin developing further. So you may have, if the, if the boy was sexually abused at five, then you're having sex with a five-year-old, psychosexually speaking. They have to move through that process and heal that wound so that they can begin developing and allowing the rest of them to come into play. There are four basic responses that a boy has to being sexually abused. He can have one or more than one. And unfortunately, so many are abused 
multiple times by sometimes by different perpetrators or, or multiple times over many years by the same perpetrator. So the first response possible that I'm going to cover is freezing or compliance. Think of a animal, a zebra, being attacked by a lion in the wilds of Africa. And that zebra is running for his life and all of a sudden he gets caught and he stops, he collapses, he freezes. And inside, his adrenaline is running at maximum speed. But he's anesthetized, so if he's starting to be eaten by the lion, he doesn't feel anything. But he's aware enough that if an opportunity comes for him to escape, that he can jump up and run away. That's what a child does. Most often, is they're overwhelmed, they're terrified, and they freeze, and they look compliant because they're overpowered. They have no power in this situation. They don't have permission to say no for the most part. They may feel unsafe, and particularly if it's a parent or a relative or somebody close who has authority over them, they're in this no-win situation, so they just collapse and take whatever's given to them. The second possible response is dissociation splitting or repression. Dissociation means that instead of being here, that I'm moving back here someplace or over there someplace, it's just that there's like living in a world of a fog bank that you can kind of see what's there, but it isn't really crisp. It's not really present. You're not really fully engaged in that. And a child who's been severely sexually abused can live many, many, many years largely dissociated. Or if there's an experience that reminds them of that experience on some level, energetically, physically, whatever, they can be dissociated again and again they're out of focus. It's people bumping into things, being awkward, not quite really there making contact with you. Splitting means that they build this wall in between them and this experience. They'll remember it, but they aren't going to get close to the feelings around that wall. It's just behind it. And so consequently, if that wall starts to come down, they're terrified they're going to be lost, overwhelmed in feeling, and they'll go crazy, that it's too much. So to save them, and this is a very normal, healthy defense that a child uses to deal with an experience that is more than they can handle. So in the experience of a relationship, you might accidentally come up against that wall and you get this ah, pushback. It's because he's terrified. The child part of him is terrified that that wall is going to come down and he can't handle it. And the last part of this one is the repression. Some, the technical term is occluded memory. It simply means that it, the experience was so painful, it was so overwhelming, that they literally closed the door behind it and they don't remember it. And so something can trigger that memory, it can come back. It may be gone for a lifetime, but they still have all the symptomology of abuse. They have all of the things that are going on around that, the dysfunctional relationships, the regressed kind of sex, but they simply don't remember. The next possible response is the pleasure eroticized shame response. In this case, it's where they were sexually abused but the experience was highly pleasurable. That means that they were stimulated in some way. And so consequently, they downloaded, they take on the shame of the perpetrator who knows that this is wrong. 
And so they take that bad feeling and I am bad of the shame and combine that with this erotic energy that's coming up in their body that may be the first time they've ever experienced that on any level. And so that becomes combined. So shame and erotic pleasure are combined and it shows up in relationships and wanting to be humiliated or being spanked or having some kind of specific kind of role play that puts them back in this situation. They've eroticized these feelings and consequently that's what sex means to them. And just as an aside, our first sexual experience is our imprint for what sex is. That's how we down. Oh, I've had sex, so this is what sex is supposed to be. If you're healthy, that can adapt and evolve and change. But if it's an unhealthy, a traumatic, abusive experience, you're again stuck and that is your imprint is what sex is. It takes a lot of work to loosen that up and it may never completely go away. And then the last possible response is the pain or the sexual humiliation. And not the pleasurable kind of the eroticized shame. But a, this would be a typical response of a straight boy who's sexually abused by a man in that there's no erotic content in this for him. There's no erotic pleasure. And if he does get some physical pleasure out of it, it may even feel worse because he feels like his body's betraying him. And so consequently, anything around this is just excruciatingly painful and humiliating in the worst sense, and he wants nothing to do with it. So there are four possible responses are freezing compliance, dissociation splitting repression, pleasure eroticized shame, or the pain, non-pleasurable humiliation. So it's really important that you understand this because as you're in relationship with these men, you're probably going to see some of these responses happening. And so if it makes sense, you're going to be less, take it less personally. It's going to be easier for you to detach in a healthy way and yet have compassion and empathy at the same time. So what I'd like to talk about next is the female perpetrator. I know for some of you this will be really hard, but the vast majority of sexual abuse happens inside the family. It happens within the extended family or the school system or scouts or clubs and so forth. And so mom and dad are actually a primary candidates here. I know that we spend a lot of time in the press talking about stranger abduction and so forth, but that is a very, very tiny percentage of the children who are actually sexually abused. It's much closer to home, I'm sad to say. I seem to like fours, but there are four ways that women sexually abuse boys. First is the overt intercourse, oral sex, that sort of thing. That's the overt sexual experience that we all understand as sex. But then there's the covert sexual experience. It's where mom is coming into Junior's bedroom with the see-through negligee and slightly seducing him, or maybe a lot, trying to get his attention or playing him off against dad, trying to get uh, his attention to sexually arouse him. When a mother is attempting to get her erotic needs met via the child as opposed to the husband that's going to sexually abuse the boy. And again, we don't like to think about these things, 
but mother-son emotional incest is incredibly common, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Covert abuse shows up in different ways. Voyeurism, exposure, kissing on the mouth in a sexualized way, touching in an erotic way. If you've ever seen some Tennessee William plays in between mother and son, mother in the bed gently massaging the back of her adult son and probably her young son as well. Extended nursing that satisfies the needs of the mother. These are all ways that the covert abuse shows up. And then the third category is sexual violations. Inappropriate relationships, such as substituting the son for the absent husband, sleeping with him. I know of too many cases where the mother took the son to bed after the husband divorced or died and he stayed there till he left home. Unloading the emotional problems on him, using him as a confidant. There needs to be a boundary between the parent and the child so that the child can have a childhood. If the child is the resource for the parent, then the child gets turned into a parentified child and isn't allowed to have a childhood, and he misses all of that developmental process. And it's especially egregious if mom is talking to him about sex, talking to him about sex with his father or with other people, or he's seeing this, that it's not uncommon uh, for uh, the, the, here, the parents having sex in the next room, or, or mom with another man, or even less than you. There's too many stories of boys who watched his mom have sex with somebody else, and this profoundly impacts him. Or the same is true for his dad, but we're talking about female perpetrators at the moment. I'd like to talk about the third category of, of female perpetrators, and that's sexual violation. And that's the mother or the parent uh, invading the private areas of the, of the boy, like enemas. I had a client who, uh, when he was bad, that the mother would drag him to the bathroom, strip him, bring in the entire family and give him an enema in front of the entire family as a humiliating punishment. Watching the child beyond a reasonable age, not launching them, but again, staying too tightly in there. Obsessive cleaning of the foreskin, checking to see if the boy is developing appropriately by inducing erections or looking at their genitals and, and commenting on whether they have pubic hair or not. Squeezing pimples in an intrusive way. Overly inquiring about bodily functions like bowel movements. Anything that is used by the adult to satisfy their erotic need. A child picks that up. I often use the example of dad spanking junior and dad getting off on it. Well, junior will feel that. He will pick up that erotic charge from dad, just as he would pick up any of these other erotic charges from mom, because children are sponges. They feel this stuff. They smell this stuff. It's their, it's their job is to absorb all of this information so that they understand the world. And they're getting all this subtext. They may not intellectually understand it, but it's being downloaded into their wiring. So if mom or dad are using them in some way in order to get their jollies or to get their erotic charge, the child is going to feel that. And that's going to become part of his sexuality. Emotional incest 
is the mother using the child, the son, and in a way to get her emotional erotic needs met. So she's not doing it overtly in that she's not having sex with him in the sense of intercourse or oral sex or kissing, but that she is using him in the substitute for her husband. I once heard a famous, a father of a famous pianist talk about it's the job of the father to protect the son from the mother. It's the father needs to be there to meet mom's needs so she doesn't turn to the son because you have what happens back in the agrarian society, that you all lived on a farm, popped out as many kids as possible to help with the farm. Consequently, mom and dad were there together all the time. But when we moved into the industrial age, all of a sudden dad went off to work, mom stayed home. And so he may work long, long hours, have very little to do with the family. And so she's not getting her needs met. And she has this wonderful baby boy who loves her so much and that she'd give all of her love to. And consequently, it's too much. Initially, yes, there's that oneness and separateness that needs to, oneness that happens, and then there needs to be separateness. It's the parent is there to meet the needs of the child, but also be detached. So that the child learns autonomy and being in the world. And if mom is using him to talk about her problems, about her sex life or lack of sex life, or the money or all these other things, She's treating him like an adult. She's treating him like a spouse. And that's having a dramatic impact. Because what the boy learns unconsciously is that to be loved means I have to give myself up and that I'm going to be devoured by the other. So consequently, when he's erotically aroused, he can come forward, he can have sex, he can have a good time. But the moment that the erotic charge comes down, he's gone because it's overwhelming. It's consuming. And... If we go all the way to the pathology, if we go all the way to the worst case scenario here, is that he never had the chance to develop a sense of who he is. Is because mom was in there all the time filling up that space. And a child has to have that time to be in themselves, to be alone, to not be consumed by the other, to figure out who they are. That's part of the process of growing up, developing, and turning into an adult. So that's the overview of female perpetrators. Light and fluffy, I understand, but that's who I am. So why don't men get help? Well, first of all, there's no permission in our society for men to be abuse survivors. Women are victims, men are perpetrators. Men are supposed to take care of themselves, women are to be taken care of. That is the larger socialization. So the moment that a baby boy pops out, he's a little man, he's not a little boy, or if dad goes off to war, he tells him to take care of his mom. He's not allowed to be a child. He's not allowed to be vulnerable. He has to be able to, to protect himself and to take care of himself and defend himself and his mother and his sister and his family from the moment he pops out. And that takes a huge toll. So as he's growing up and he's victimized, he just, where does he get permission to say, I've been hurt, I've been victimized? It's simply not there. And so consequently, he stuffs it and he says, I'm going to be a man. The highest number of sexual abuse survivors in the military are in the Marines. Because so many of them are out to prove they're really a man. Because after they've been sexually abused, they don't feel like a man. 
because they didn't protect themselves and they're out to figure out how to be a man. So men use drugs, alcohol, sex, religion, anything to avoid the pain. I'm going to lose myself in this. I'm going to bury the feeling. Alcoholics Anonymous is full of sexual abuse survivors, and so is NA and all the other AA kind of groups out there. And there are many, many, many destroyed relationships along the way of guys who will dip in. Everything will be hot and great for a while, then they're gone. Or they're cheating, or they're lost in pornography. And it's all about trying to hide the pain or to stay in the eroticized shame part of it. But until they find their way to treatment and find their way to facing that pain and moving through it, it can't change. If you take nothing else from this video, is that you can't fix him. It's not in your power. I wish it were. It'd be a lot more healthy men out there. But you can't fix him. You can't solve the problem for him. And if you're here and he's not, that's a bad sign. He has to want to change. He has to be willing to face the pain of his past. He has to be willing to admit he was a victim. And he has to be willing to go through the process of healing. And for a lot of men, that's just never going to happen. And that breaks my heart because we've lost so many wonderful men out there who are never going to be happy, who are never going to be sober, who are never going to have the kind of relationship that they deserve. And so they just go from one person to the next to the next, wounded and wounding people along the way when a little healing would go a long way towards giving them the life they so richly deserve. So again, you can't fix him. Love is not enough. It's great. Love is important. But it's not enough to stay in a bad relationship. And it's certainly not enough to heal the other person. Your job is to take care of you. And if you have children, it's your job to take care of your children. To protect them from a lot of the fallout or all of the fallout that can happen from this. From the affairs to the drug addiction to the alcoholism to the pornography, to all the other things that can show up around a sexual abuse survivor. If you have a child with this man, it's your job to protect that child. That is your number one job. And the relationship is secondary at this point. Treatment will take time, possibly years. Depends on the severity of the abuse. Depends on the amount of it. Depends upon the amount of denial, the methods that he's using to avoid dealing with this or has avoided. It also has to do with his willingness to face or ability to face the pain. It has to do with his willingness and or ability to face the pain and deal with this. Some guys just simply don't have the capacity. The pain is so overwhelming that they feel like they're going to die. I knew of a gentleman who was severely sexually abused and every time they got into treatment, he would attempt suicide. He simply didn't have a strong enough sense of self 
to tolerate the amount of pain that was going to happen. And so he eventually succeeded in killing himself. And so he was really in a no-win situation, and they would have had to have addressed the lack of sense of self before they could address the sexual abuse. And unfortunately, in his case, that never happened. And of course, the hardest part sometimes is finding the right therapist. I'm sad to say that I've had too many clients come to my office and say that their last therapist that had made fun of them or told them they were overreacting, or if they were if it was a male sexually abused by a female, he should feel lucky, or they just told them to go away. And that their pain on the moment they were reaching out to the person who should have been most there for them was denied. And that breaks my heart. It should never happen. But it does, because therapists are human too. And so finding the right therapist who has experience with male survivors, female survivors are, are a different set of issues. And so finding the therapist who isn't going to pathologize, who isn't going to attempt to tell them this isn't real or minimize it in some way, and find somebody who really has compassion and somebody who... That, that most of all, the man trusts. And that sometimes means going through many therapists to get there. So let's talk about you. You deserve a healthy, wonderful relationship. You deserve somebody who genuinely wants to be with you emotionally, sexually, physically, who doesn't run from you at those really key moments. I also have to say, sexual abuse survivors often find each other. I had a woman write me one time who uh, talked about she kept finding one sexual abuse survivor after another, and then I said, well, you need to look at your own history, and, and she told me I was really rude. And then she wrote me back and said, well, do you think that date rape in college maybe it had an effect on this? And I said, yes, you need to clean that up. And most of all, if you're still in there, if you have tried over and over and over to save this relationship, if you've tried over and over to fix him, if you've tried over and over to change yourself, to make him happy, to keep him there, to have the relationship you think you're supposed to have with this man, then you need to look at your codependency. There's a wonderful book called Codependent No More. It's mostly for people who are dealing with addicts in their life, but the information is solid and there are other books by the same author and I recommend starting looking at this. Al-Anon meetings are a really wonderful place to find other people who are dealing with these similar kind of issues as they've got addicts in their life and they're trying to fix them and they're trying to stop fixing them. And your job is to take care of you. Ultimately, we're responsible for ourselves just as the sexual abuse survivor is responsible for his self and his actions and his choices. He's an adult. If you're seeing this, it's most likely he's an adult. And you're an adult. And you need to treat him like an adult. And one of my favorite expressions is, is that if there are no consequences for bad behavior, there's no incentive to change it. So if you're continuing to go back to him, no matter how he treats you, no matter what happens, the problem here is you, not him. He's taking care of himself. Your job is to take care of yourself. And if you have children, your children. So 
if this has been going on a long time and if he's unwilling to get help or if it's so far down the line that it's not going to matter, then my advice is to get on with your life. I know that feels harsh and cold, but we can't save another. And if you're sacrificing yourself to save somebody else, then you're the one who needs treatment right now. My definition of codependency is giving you up to be loved by the other. So if you're giving you up, it's time to stop and take assessment and figure out what you really want in your life and set yourself up to get the love that you want, the love that you need, and most of all, the love you deserve. Mm -hmm.